0: Welcome, everyone. This is Treks to Nowhere. I like to think that despite my now 10-plus years of running ultramarathons, that I still go into every endeavor with some level of humility and respect for any course that I'm about to run. Even that weekend half-marathon is still a race and does still present its own set of challenges. I've been quite fortunate over the past decade to experience a wide range and variety of runs spanning all the way from long road races like Badwater or Vol State to insane mountain trail races like the Barkley Marathons or Hard Rock. In all cases, though, I never assume anything, and I always know that I will face any number of ups and downs while out on a course. Generally, though, over the years, I would say that I have at least gained a modicum of confidence. Usually when I set my foot on that start line, whatever line it may be, I at least feel good about my odds. But then, there's Spartathlon. This specific race plays to what I would consider my biggest overall weakness when it comes to my running. Speed. When it comes to the difficult courses, or the technical courses, or the courses that require me to really dig deep, or gut it out, or push through that pain cave, or insert cliche here, I feel like I at least have an honest chance. But if a race requires strict time cutoffs and that the runner maintain a quick pace throughout the race, that is when my confidence plummets. I think back to my journey to qualify for the Boston Marathon and just how difficult that really was. I trained hard and still failed at my first honest attempt at qualifying. It took me an entire year and focused training to actually have success and qualify, and it took everything I had to do it. These were the sort of things that I was thinking about. In the months leading up to my Spartathlon race. The Spartathlon course is not a place where I could choose to walk for a couple of miles just to relax a bit. I would need to keep running and moving at all times. It was that thought that had me rightfully nervous. For those not familiar with the event, the Spartathlon covers 153 miles, from the Acropolis in Athens all the way to the statue of King Leonidas in Sparta. The route is such that it covers what is believed to be the original route of Phidippides as he made his way from Athens to Sparta over two days. The first 60 miles of the course are generally flat, allowing for good running, but the second half of the course features some hefty climbs. Regardless of the elevation profile, the course would be difficult no matter the situation. What ultimately makes the yearly finish rate for Spartathlon less than 50% is that the entire course must be covered in less than 36 hours. So to put that into perspective, I completed the Hard Rock 100 race in Colorado in 40 hours. A race that is 53 miles shorter, yet took me over four hours longer than I would get for Spartathlon. For the country of Greece, the Spartathlon is an incredibly important event. Thousands of people will line the streets to cheer for runners, and there's a lot of interaction between those runners and the spectators. This is a big day and a big event for the locals. In many ways, it's much like running the Boston Marathon, only at a national level. So as expected, and despite my nervousness, I was actually quite excited going into this event. Much like with Badwater, when I applied to Spartathlon, I honestly wasn't really thinking I'd be invited, so when I ultimately did get the invitation, it was quite the reality check. One of my good running friends calls this type of invitation an, oh no, I got in, invitation. Receiving the invitation was definitely an oh boy type moment, especially considering all of the history for a race like Spartathlon, and the fact that when you are invited to run, you are running as a member of your country's national team. This meant that I would be running for the U.S. team. A very humbling thought, indeed. Now, when you first look at the time cutoffs, they don't seem too extreme. But when you consider that you never really get any sort of break, that's when reality starts to set in. For example, the cutoff for 50 miles is approximately 9.5 hours. Now, for a relatively flat road race, this is more than reasonable. I have run several 50-mile or even 100-kilometer races where I've reached the 50-mile mark in under 8 hours, but those were shorter races. Now, if I go back and I look at some of my faster times for 100-milers, the idea of making the 50-mile cutoff for a 153-mile race becomes a little more daunting. Because of this reality, it forced me to focus a lot of my training on pacing leading up to the event. You see, it can be really hard to run those early miles at a long-distance ultra in preparation for how you might feel at, say, mile 100. But it is necessary to train this way. You must run fast enough to allow for a reasonable finish, but slow enough so as to conserve your energy and avoid too fast of a slowdown. Over the entire Spartathlon course of 153 miles, the average pace that must be maintained to finish under the time cutoff is roughly 14 minutes per mile. Now on the surface, this is almost a walkable pace. But again, this is over the entire race, including... All of the late stage climbs and all aid station breaks. If you look at the published pace charts for the event, you can clearly see that over the first 50 miles, a runner must essentially average sub 11 minute mile pace in order to make the initial cutoffs. Again, this is a very doable pace, but also quite difficult for a mid packer like myself. Now with all this said, I definitely did my homework going into the event. I spent hours going through aid station cutoff times and formulating strategies that would give me the best chance at a finish. And let me be clear, my only goal going into this event was to just finish. My mentality going in would be that I would have 36 hours to cover 153 miles. And if I reached the finish line, In 35 hours, 52 minutes. Well, that would be perfectly fine with me. About a month before Spartathlon, I participated in an event that allowed me to practice what I called 8-2 pacing. This would mean I would run for 8 minutes and then power hike for 2. I practiced this strategy for multiple hours over multiple days, covering more than 100 total miles. Going into Spartathlon, I would be ready. In the month leading up to the race, everything was going well and as planned, but about a week before the event, I learned of some troubling news. The weather forecast was predicting rains for the entire race weekend. More specifically, meteorologists were forecasting what they called a Mediterranean cyclone. It was going to be a wet race with likely gale force winds. Just before boarding my flight to Greece, I was asked to write a brief statement for my Team USA bio, and here's what I wrote. I suppose for me, Spartathlon represents an event that is so much bigger than myself. Over the years, I've participated in just about every type of ultra event that is out there, and in each case, I carry with me a collection of thoughts and feelings that motivate me and drive me to that finish. Some of those motivators are personal, stemming from a drive to push myself or simply to experience something new, while some of those motivators are about others and a goal to run for or in honor of someone's memory. Spartathlon represents the first time for me that I will truly be running on behalf of my entire country. I will be driven by the thoughts that my participation And my run are not just for, or in honor of any single person, but for all of my fellow countrymen and women, both home and abroad. This is an incredibly humbling feeling, and I only hope that I represent and honor both my team and my country well. I look forward to sharing the course with my fellow teammates and with the hundreds of other runners that will also be running for their respective countries. Now something I had found out about a week before leaving for Athens was that of all my 15 U.S. teammates, I would be arriving last. This led to a bit of anxiety, particularly with the thought of jet lag. I hadn't realized that Athens was a full seven hours ahead of Eastern time zone, so was definitely stressing about not having enough time to deal with that offset. I wasn't set to arrive until late Wednesday night, with the race starting Friday morning. This basically meant I had only one full day to rest and adjust. Thankfully, my flights over went seamlessly, and I transitioned through London Heathrow without any issue. Once I left the airport, I hopped on a local bus, and for six euro, I got a direct ride to my hotel in the suburb of Glifada. I arrived just in time to catch the hotel dinner, which was included, before checking in and heading up to my room. Once in my room, I pulled out all of my gear and sorted it, and then did my best to get some sleep. The forecast for race day was still showing rain, but things had become quite a bit more interesting since checking the weather before the flight. It turned out that the Mediterranean cyclone that was forecast had started to brew off the coast of Greece and was now predicted to make landfall right over Sparta on midday Saturday. Winds were predicted to be upwards of 60 miles per hour with potential flood-level rains. Apparently, Sparta is known for flash flooding. There wasn't really anything I could do about it, so I just made sure to pack a few extra ponchos and some additional rain gear in my drop bags. I did manage to get a decent night's sleep, and on Thursday my only goal was to check in and sort my drop bags. Late Thursday afternoon, I sat through the mandatory runner briefing and didn't really learn anything new. They told us some specifics on certain aid stations and some additional rules for crew, but since I was there alone, most of the briefing was already covered in the runner packet. After about 45 minutes, we all filed out, and the rest of the evening was ours to relax. We took our U.S. team photo shortly after, and then everyone settled in for an early night. The buses would pick us up at 5.45 a.m. in the morning to take us to the Acropolis, for the 7 a.m. start. I was warned by many that the buses are always running late, so to be ready to hop off the bus and run with very little time for pre-race routines. We arrived at the Acropolis with just enough time for a quick partial team photo and a stop by the porta-potties. It wasn't raining yet, but the forecast had rain coming not long after the start. It was quite crowded and somewhat chaotic in the starting area, and I don't remember much other than simply trying to calm my nerves a bit. 7 o'clock came up quickly and before long, the 10-second countdown began. It was already getting lighter out, but as expected, a light rain had already started to fall. It was going to be a wet day. The first to 10-15 miles of the race were probably my least favorite the runners were all still very tightly huddled together and the course just wound its way around through urban Athens. Heavy traffic, city smells, and of course loud background noise were all less than ideal. However, the upside was that the course to these early miles was essentially flat and fast. I had been told by many that the more scenic parts of the course don't really start until you reach Corinth around mile 40. For the entire race, I had very specific time and effort goals that I had set for myself, with my first primary milestone being the marathon mark. My written goals were as follows. Marathon, sub-4 hours 10 minutes, or 9.30 pace. 50 mile, sub-8 hour 40. 100k, sub-11 hour 15 minutes. 100 mile, sub-21 hours. Over 100 mile, just finish. So if I made it over 100 miles as planned, my only goal would then be to hang on and finish. Now if I were able to hit the 100 mile mark in my planned 21 hours, it would mean that my natural slowdown would put me on a pace to finish the entire run, probably in about 34 hours, giving me a nice 2 hour reserve cushion. This... Was a nice estimate, an estimate that I could live with. But it was also not necessarily what I was aiming for. Again, my only goal going into the race was to finish in the 36 hour time limit. And given the forecast and the now impending cyclone, this seemed like a reasonable goal. Throughout the race, and in addition to the time goals I had set, I also had effort goals that I set for myself. These included Run consistently through the first 40 miles. Then, from miles 40 to 75, incorporate 8 twos, where I would run for 8 minutes and power walk for 2. Then, from miles 75 to 100, incorporate 7 threes, where I would run for 7 minutes and power walk for 3. From 100 on, run just as much as possible, but walk if needed, always walking faster than 3 miles per hour. And lastly, and this one was really important, spend less than 30 seconds at any aid station unless I had a drop bag. My first goal was to hit the marathon mark in under 4 hours and 10 minutes, or roughly a sub 9.30 per mile pace. To me, this meant steady and focused running through Athens, with stops of only 15 seconds or less at aid stations, and skipping some if possible. The first two aid stations were water drops only, and at station 3, I ate my carried gummies. This meant I didn't even stop at an aid station until well over 10 miles into the run, saving me some additional time. In the first few miles, I ran on and off with various members of the U.S. team, but ultimately stuck to my own game plan. I never ran with other team members for too long if their pace was too much greater than my own planned pace. In a few instances, I caught myself running sub-9-minute miles, and I had to pump the brakes hard. It's just so easy to go out fast at an event like this. I cannot stress this enough. The early miles are flat and very easy, and there's a palpable adrenaline in the air. Even a moderate 9-minute-per-mile pace just feels so darn slow so it was very hard to force myself to not go any faster. Now some might say this is a poor strategy and I should have just run what I felt was right, but I know this would have only come back to haunt me in the later miles. As you'll come to hear, and because of my conservative strategy, my legs and overall body felt great even at 100 miles. Somewhere around the half-marathon mark in Elefcina, I caught up to U.S. team member Andre. We ended up running together on and off all the way until mile 40. He ended up being great company, and being a Spartathlon veteran, he was able to fill me in on course information and great points of interest along the way. Running and chatting along with Andre really made those early miles go by effortlessly, and we both appeared to be on the same pacing plan. I consistently reminded him to go ahead if I was slowing him down but even when he would inch ahead, I'd generally catch back up, so we just sort of went with it. By this point in the race, we were out of the densely populated urban parts of Athens, but were still running past the occasional oil refinery. These sections of the course were definitely the most pungent. Needless to say, I couldn't wait to get to the more coastal and beautiful rural parts of the course. Now, in my mind, this meant Corinth at mile 50, but what I didn't realize was just up ahead was the beautiful coastal run along the gulfs of Elefsina and Megara. The running along this stretch was simply magnificent. The views out to Salamina Island were lovely, and what was even more pleasant was that the rains had started to let up a bit. This ended up being one of the nicest sections of the run on that first day. The coastal miles went by quickly and the aid stations came one after another. Andre and I were checking off early miles exactly as I had hoped. A quick pace check had me arriving at the marathon mark right at my planned 4.10, so I was a little nervous that I had gone out perhaps a smidge too conservatively. I chose to pick it up just a bit and Andre didn't notice, so we continued together. At the Magara aid station, the runners hit the marathon mark. This is a very well-published milestone for the race. Now, I had my own goal of a sub-410, and as I crossed the mat, my watch recorded four hours and eight minutes. Perfect, I thought. I felt absolutely fantastic and had no notable fatigue. I was still running completely and had no urge to walk. My pace did slow a bit, but exactly as I had predicted. Now, despite my optimism, the first real notable time cutoff for Spartathlon doesn't actually come until mile 50. It's that 50-mile cutoff that's the greatest source of anxiety for most runners. Once over 50 miles, though, the pace needed to maintain a finish drops significantly. Now, in order to make the cutoff at 50 miles, Runners must cross the mat in 9 hours and 30 minutes or less. For me, I wanted at least a 45-minute time cushion there, so was aiming for about 8 hours and 40 minutes. I was in and out of the Magara Marathon aid station quickly, while Andre stopped for a bit longer for aid. I didn't have my first drop bag until mile 50, so wanted to just keep going and bank as much time as possible in the early miles. I figured Andre would eventually just catch up to me. The coastal running continued after Megara and the miles kept creeping by. Soon I was at the 50k mark and Andre was back up running with me. We continued to trade stories as the miles went by and I informed him of my intention to start incorporating two-minute walk breaks once we hit the 40-mile mark. I also told him to go on ahead if he wanted to keep running. I was eager for something new, so was treating mile 40 as a big milestone. The rains managed to stay away as the morning slipped into afternoon, and overall the course stayed incredibly flat and runnable with only a few small climbs along the way. The elevation profile did show a small climb ahead into mile 50, but the first real sustained climb wouldn't start until well after the large age station, at just over the 100-kilometer mark. At that aid station, I had a large drop bag, which I was also likely to hit not long before nightfall, so this seemed like a good place to take my first real sustained break. With that said, I had my first drop bag at mile 50 and was planning on a short 2-3 to minute break there, depending on my time cushion. Miles 30-40 to went by fairly quickly and in somewhat of a blur. I remember hitting the 50k mark, and then not long after thinking that my walking breaks were going to start in just a couple of miles. At mile 40, I hit an aid station and began my 2-minute speed walking breaks. upon leaving. I noted that even when walking, I was moving at 15 minute per mile pace, or 4 miles per hour. I had practiced walking fast a lot in the weeks and months leading up to the race, and I could tell that it was paying off. Despite my two-minute walking breaks, I managed to stay on and off with André all the way into Corinth and the large canal bridge at mile 50. The pedestrian bridge over the enormous canal is a significant milestone for runners in the race and marks the point where the scenery begins to change drastically. It also marks the first really big time cutoff as it's just before the 50-mile aid station. When I finally made it to the 50-mile station, I was ecstatic upon checking my splits. My watch read 8.20, putting me a full 70 minutes ahead of the cutoff. I was actually slightly concerned that I was now pushing too hard, but figured if I was on that pace, even with my walking breaks, that I was still doing okay. Given the cushion, I took a few extra minutes at the station to rest and eat some hot soup and noodles. A good friend of mine happened to be at the aid station and snapped a photo of me, where I have a goofy grin on my face, very pleased with my efforts so far. Despite having now run 50 miles, I was still not really feeling fatigued at all. I was ready to start some of the more beautiful miles and enjoy the late afternoon. At this point in the race, it was still only 3.30 in the afternoon and I had hours to go before nightfall. My headlamp and warm gear were waiting for me at mile 63, and I had plenty of time to get there. Other than swapping out some electrolyte mixes and a few fruit strips, I didn't change out any of my clothing at mile 50 and gave my drop bag back rather quickly. I left the aid station starting out with a nice two-minute walk break, letting my food settle a bit. I had a big grin knowing that I was now starting the more rolling and rural parts of the course. These roads would be much smaller, often dirt, and much more my style. I was told of remote ruins, endless lines of olive trees, and myriad wineries that would be dotting the course. Things were about to get really good. Andre had left the station well before me, so I had assumed I wouldn't see him again. I had roughly 13 miles to get to the 100k mark and my big drop bag in Zev Galadio. I was planning a substantial stop there to reassess clothing, get my headlamp set up, and take in a few extra warm calories. I continued on as usual, also knowing that these 13 miles would be the last real easy miles on the course. Upon leaving the station at 63, I would have my first real sustained climb. My 8.2s were still working fairly well, but I was starting to sense the slightest hint of fatigue coming on. I had been hoping that I wouldn't really notice any fatigue until at least the halfway point in the race, so this had me a little concerned. Somewhere deep down, I knew that I probably hadn't trained with the volume of miles I really needed to run Spartathlon without issue. Eventually, the daylight hours began to fade, and after running through some beautiful country spotted with old ruins, I finally came up on Zevgladio and my primary drop bag. I hit the 100k mark right at 11 hours, so only about 15 minutes ahead of my planned pace. I had definitely slowed a bit, but was actually now almost 90 minutes ahead of the cutoffs. Somewhere along this stretch, while running through one of the neighborhoods of Old Corinth, dozens of local children came out onto the streets to ask the runners for autographs. It was all a bit surreal, but I stopped several times to sign small notebooks. Many of the children would ask me for my name, and I would simply reply, Today we are all Pheidippides. I arrived at the aid station right around 6pm and I immediately grabbed my bag and sat down on the curb to sort through it. I had some snacks from the aid station but was more concerned about assessing my clothing choices before starting into the night. The forecast had much more rain and cold temperatures headed my way so I changed my shirt, grabbed my raincoat, and put on my headlamp. I did sort through some more gear and grabbed a few more snacks from the aid station, but left after only about seven minutes. Very soon after leaving, I was already switching on my headlamp and beginning the 1,000-foot slow climb up rolling country roads. It was sometime around sunset that the rains returned, and they were definitely cold. I was regretting that I didn't grab my cheap poncho at the previous drop bag, thinking my raincoat would be enough. But despite its Gore-Tex fabric, it was not keeping me very dry, and I was starting to worry a bit about the temperatures. The dirt roads were also getting quite saturated, and at many places along the course I was forced to trudge through ankle-deep mud puddles. Still, I was having a blast and was sincerely enjoying those rolling dirt roads much more so than the paved city roads of earlier. My next big drop bag stops would be at mile 76 and then at mile 92. These gave me very bite-sized and tangible goals to aim for after leaving the large mile 63 station. I would have a 13-mile section and then a 16-mile section. The slow climb up to ancient Nymea at mile 76 actually kept me quite warm as I was notably working harder. In this stretch, I also slipped a little bit on my pace and started working in 7.3s perhaps a smidge before I had originally planned. Still, I was well within my overall planned pace and was now roughly two hours up on the time cutoffs and still gaining. These early evening miles went by a bit slowly. But at one point, I came up on a familiar face in the dark—my fellow U.S. team member and well-known ultra runner, Dean Karnazes. We spoke a bit, and it didn't take long to realize that he was not really in a good place mentally. Eventually, he pulled ahead of me, and I was content to fall back into a nice, isolated pocket. Now, I should note that only now was I noticing large gaps in the runners. For the first time, I truly felt like I was out on the course, alone. I could see a faint headlamp or two way up ahead of me, and maybe one at a distance behind me. But for the most part, we were all moving at about the same speed, meaning that I was in my own little place, my own little pocket, along the course. I did notice that I was starting to get rather chilled, so upon arriving at my next drop bag, I not only grabbed my hat and gloves, but I took a spare garbage bag from the aid station. It was definitely a rather crude poncho, but it did the trick and kept me notably warmer as the rains continued to fall. I managed to keep fueling sufficiently on soda, biscuits, cookies, chocolates, and energy drinks. I still wasn't feeling aerobically tired yet, but my legs were definitely starting to get a bit heavy. I kept on plugging away into the night and eventually made it to my next drop bag at mile 92 in Lurkia. This was a critical point in the race as it marks the start of the infamous mountain climb. When leaving Lurkia, the runners can clearly see the long ascent that will be made up the subsequent road switchbacks. It's one of the few times that you can see ahead to what you will have to do along the course. The road climbs about 2,000 feet over roughly seven miles until it eventually terminates at the trailhead for the final climb up the 1,000 feet to the mountain summit. The word at the aid station in Lurkia was that it was a whopping three degrees C at the summit. I was preparing myself for some very cold temperatures. The road climb did progress quickly, and I was pleased that I was able to maintain a 16 minute per mile pace over this climb. For as steep as the road bits were, this to me was a huge success. I passed a few aid stations along the climb, but eventually did make it to the base of the final trail section right at mile 99. I topped up at the station and was told it was just a little over a mile to the summit with about a thousand feet of gain. This was definitely the steepest and most technical part of the entire course. It was a single-track trail made more tricky by the slick rain and mud. I put my head down, put my hands on my thighs, and started climbing as best I could. I caught up to and passed several runners in the stretch, including several of my fellow U.S. team members. In less than 15 minutes, I had topped out on the summit. It was cold, close to freezing, and completely socked in with a misty fog. I felt bad for the aid station volunteers who were just sitting there, cold and shivering, trying to help the runners. After a very quick turnaround in the aid station, I began my descent down the rocky jeep road into Sagas. I noted my overall time. The summit is right at 100 miles, and my watch clocked 20 hours and 30 minutes total. This was absolutely fantastic, considering the conditions and the long climb I had just endured. Somehow, I managed to still crack 21 hours by over 30 minutes and was now over 2 hours and 15 minutes ahead of the cutoff. Ultimately, it would be this point in the race that I would find myself with the largest time cushion. When I arrived down in Sagas, I actually took some time to warm up at the aid station. Perhaps this wasn't the best idea, but at the time I couldn't think of anything better than getting some hot coffee and soup. Ultimately, I do think it helped a bit, but it was somewhere at this point that I was also starting to notice a hint of nagging pain in my left foot. I left the station on my 7-3 plan, but slipped rather quickly into six fours. For the next 15 miles or so, I was presented with what I can only describe as A rather boring stretch. It's hard to explain, but the terrain was excruciatingly flat with almost no discernible scenery and along a very straight stretch of roads. In addition, I was on this stretch in the hours not long before sunrise when I was the most tired. I was also completely alone in this stretch, making the miles drag on even more. The sun did eventually come up along this section of the course, and when I finally made it to Alea Tega at mile 121, after what seemed like an eternity, it was the last time I really felt okay and was able to genuinely run. You see, over the course of the past few hours during this stretch, my left foot had become incredibly painful, and I was limited in how much running I could actually do. I swapped out some gear in my last drop bag and started to think ahead to the fact that I still had 50 kilometers remaining in the race. A quick scan of my watch revealed that I had lost another 20 minutes into my time cushion and was now only an hour and 55 minutes ahead of the cutoff. This realization certainly caught my attention, but I wasn't quite panicking yet. Some quick math revealed that even with walking alone, as long as I maintained a pace of about 3.2 miles per hour, I'd still finish within the 36-hour time limit. This is roughly a 17 or 18-minute mile. I honestly don't remember much about miles 121 through 140, other than that they were really slow. This was definitely the lowest point mentally for me in the race. I was frustrated by the fact that I couldn't really run, and I was also getting progressively colder and losing more time. People were consistently passing me in this stretch as well, which of course didn't do wonders for my confidence. What I do remember is that I mostly just put my head down and made it a game of just make it to the next aid station. This stretch of the course is also quite high in elevation, making it exceptionally cold. In addition, somewhere around mile 135, the infamous Mediterranean cyclone, appropriately named Zorba, had actually started to rear its ugly head. Winds picked up notably and the rain started coming in sideways. Nothing too ridiculous just yet, but enough to sour the mood. Every aid station that I passed through during this stretch, I noted the cutoff times, and I was progressively losing between 5 and 10 minutes for each station. This did not bode well for a successful finish. At mile 138, which I hit roughly 31 hours into the race and only about an hour and 15 minutes ahead of the cutoff, I began what would be the last significant climb on the course. I was entirely walking at this point with only a few short running efforts which never lasted more than a minute or two. My left foot had become nearly impossible to run on, and I was actually starting to worry that I may have incurred a stress fracture. I kept telling myself I just had 15 more miles that I needed to suffer through. How much worse could it really get? When I finally topped out on the last climb of the course around mile 140, I was greeted with ferocious winds and rain. This was the kind of wind that literally pushes you off your feet, especially when you are wearing what is effectively a large sail. I was getting blown across the road in what was easily 50 to 60 mile per hour winds. The rain was blowing so hard that it was coming in sideways, and the water on the ground was actually flowing uphill. I was also still up over 2,500 feet and I began to visibly and audibly shiver. All I could do was suffer my way through the last 13 miles. A simple half-marathon, I kept telling myself. The wrath of Zorba the Greek was in full effect. The few aid stations that were still remaining on the course were starting to shut down because they were literally getting blown over. Ambulance crews were riding along the course and beginning to pick up runners that were having trouble. This was really a bad scene and all I wanted to do was drop down in elevation and get out of the wind shear zones. I figured that once I dropped below 1500 feet and off of the mountain tops things would be a little more bearable. The problem with this thinking was that despite the apparent steepness on the elevation profile the actual descent was spread out over the last 10 miles. This meant it would be at least five miles of walking before I'd really be out of the horrible winds. As I descended, passing by the shut-down aid stations and shivering uncontrollably, I noticed massive trees that had blown down, huge outcrops that had shed large boulders, and what appeared to be signs of flash flooding all down the mountain. The situation was starting to get genuinely dangerous. I didn't know it at the time, but apparently the Spartathlon committee had actually extended the overall race time limit by one hour due to the conditions. But that word never reached us runners in the last 10 miles. For me, I was still under the impression that only a sub-36 hour run would be counted as official. Every mile that passed, I just kept getting colder and I still couldn't run on my bad foot. At around mile 145, I started doing the finish math, and pending some major problem, it was looking like I was going to be able to walk it in and still finish sub-36. I was certainly disappointed by the prospect of going out with a whimper, especially after such a successful first hundred miles, but I told myself over and over again that my only goal was to finish. At mile 147, just 10 kilometers from the finish, I hit the town just uphill from Sparta. I was in and out of the aid station quickly and continued to limp on down the road. Just three short miles later, at mile 150, I passed through the last village before Sparta. I was told by a spectator that there were just two aid stations remaining and only 5.5 kilometers to the finish. I was genuinely within reach now. The scenery was starting to get more notably urban as I entered the outskirts of Sparta. I crossed the Eurotas River, which was absolutely raging above flood stage. The entire city was essentially flooded. I didn't care, though. I was plowing through ankle-deep puddles with no regard or care whatsoever. When I hit that last aid station, aid station 74, It had already been torn down. I didn't even care. I had only two and a half kilometers or one and a half miles to go at this point. Nothing was going to stop me and nothing was going to sour my mood. When I checked my watch, it read 35 hours, six minutes total time. I would have 54 minutes to cover one and a half miles. This was truly the first time during the entire race that I knew for certain I was going to finish. For the last mile, the course takes you around an inner-city block of Sparta before the long straightaway that leads to the King Leonidas statue at the finish line. As I walked along this stretch, locals all along the way began cheering for me as loud as they could. It brought tears to my eyes. I felt like a true messenger that had just made the actual journey from Athens to bring word to the Spartans it was surreal. When I rounded the last turn onto the street lined with all of the international flags, I could see the Leonidas statue about a half a mile down the road. Somehow, despite the overwhelming pain, I managed to pick up a feeble jog and ran that last half mile down the road, up the steps, and to the foot of Leonidas. I rested my head upon his foot, kissed it as is tradition and finally took the long-overdue deep breath. My final time? 35 hours, 33 minutes. I had lost over 90 minutes in the last 25 miles of the race due to my walking, but that was all in the past. It didn't matter. I had crossed the finish line in under 36 hours. I took a drink from the ceremonial cup offered to me by the race official and immediately headed over to the medical tent. I was stripped of my wet clothing, given a dry finisher's shirt and a trophy, and eventually put in the shuttle bus to head back to the hotel. I was utterly spent and fell asleep almost immediately in the shuttle. I woke up as we arrived at the hotel and had a lot of trouble getting out of the van. I hobbled my way into the lobby, checked in, and was crashed out on the bed within minutes. I had the wherewithal to at least set an alarm, so I didn't oversleep the next morning for the bus ride back to Athens. The next few days were a blur. We were shuttled out of Sparta to a lunch hosted by the mayor. Then we were bused back to Athens arriving about 8pm that night. The next morning we had some free time and I managed to spend a few hours down at the Acropolis, touring some of the ancient temples and structures. Then, as a final blowout, the Spartathlon Association throws an enormous celebration party Monday night for all of the runners, presenting our finishing awards, certificates, and medals. The entire experience was mind-blowingly elaborate. The U.S. team went up as a group and we all received our awards together. I felt a real sense of pride in that moment. We had 15 runners for the team, and 11 managed to finish within the 36-hour time limit. Some final thoughts. First, I can't stress enough, everything about this entire experience was incredible. I have never felt so pampered and spoiled at any race. Being a part of and representing my national team was something I've never experienced before. It was humbling and gave me an additional sense of purpose for making it to that finish line. I am so grateful that I was invited. I want to personally thank my teammates for making me feel so welcome. I would also thank several previous finishers for all of their helpful data and info regarding race logistics and for pacing information. All of those data that I received were invaluable and definitely helped contribute to my successful finish. Finally, I would say that Greece is an absolutely beautiful country with wonderful people. I do hope one day to return for a proper vacation and experience at a little bit of a slower pace. Running past ruins that were built over 2,000 years ago really makes one appreciate the ridiculously fleeting nature of our own human lifespans. Thank you everyone for following along as we revisited my journey from Athens all the way to Sparta. Take care, everyone, and be safe.